Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Eden Project parachuted into Canary Wharf in bid to win back home workers. Listing sought for Channel 4's Richard Rogers-designed headquarters following privatization. Former minister Eric Pickles sparks fury over Grenfell Inquiry blunder. And as the Queen moves to Windsor, what next for Buckingham Palace? My name is Finn Harper. I am an architecture critic, and I will be diving into four big stories relating to London's architecture, all of which have broken in the last week. Welcome to The Lundown. This week we are recording live from Architects at Work in the Truman Brewery on Brick Lane. And my guests are Zoe Cave and Hafsa Adam. Zoe is Chief Curator of the London Open House Festival and Hafsa is a Curatorial Assistant at Open City. Welcome both to the show. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Hello. Woo, it's fantastic that you're here. So our first story uh, that we're going to get in our teeth into tonight uh, is about Canary Wharf. So East London's commercial skyscraper district has unveiled bold plans to transform its grey and foreboding public spaces and waterways into a new biodiverse landscape curated by Cornwall's world-famous Eden Project. The owner of the enormous East London Docklands Estate Canary Wharf Group has appointed Glenn Howells Architects, who are based in Birmingham but do a lot of work in Canary Wharf, and Eden Project to master plan a new green spine through the Canary Wharf Estate adding parks, gardens, waterside access, performance spaces, bridges, boardwalks, and pontoons, they say. The announcement was accompanied by a series of swish architectural renderings showing the plaza and waterside outside Canary Wharf Underground Station completely transformed with new trees, new boardwalks. Uh, it's a story that first broke in thisismoney.co.uk but has since been picked up by the Evening Standard and the industry press as well. It all heralds a very new direction for Canary Wharf, which has historically been dominated by kind of global banking headquarters. And as the neighborhood looks to diversify its area, uh, partly in a bid to entice people back to the office, uh, sort of financiers who maybe have been enjoying the work from home revolution. Eden Project, the Cornish educational charity famed for its tree-filled Grimshaw-designed bio-bubbles, is working as the project's biodiversity consultant. And the master plan will include a new permanent home for Eden Project inside Canary Wharf's Caesar Pele-designed One Canada Square, which is the, um, the tower with the pyramid on top, for those who don't know the work of Caesar Pele. 
the mayor seems keen. Sadiq Khan said in a statement, quote, he wants to see uh, greenery, greenery, scenery, and water rather than just steel, glass, and concrete. So this is all partly Canary Wharf trying to turn itself into a more than more than a financial district, uh, but I think also the plan has something to do with wanting to uh, uh, change working patterns or respond to changing working patterns. Uh, data indicates that while weekend travellers on the tube and the and TFL buses are back up to about ninety percent of pre-pandemic levels during the week. Um, the, the public transport system is only seeing about two-thirds of its previous volume. A planning application is expected to be submitted next month and work on the first part of the greening project will start later this year and should be completed by next January. Astonishing schedule, if true. So, Hafsa. Canary Wharf is built on what used to be part of London's historic Docklands, which closed in the 1970s. What is your take on what has happened in the area since? What do you make of the architecture, uh, you know, of the architectural proposals that are being brought, brought forwards? What do you think of this plan for a kind of green spine in Canary Wharf? Obviously, I mean, we, I mean, anyone who's visited Canary Wharf now can see that it's very different to what it used to be as a Dockland. It kind of became a financial kind of banking district and it's kind of cut off, I guess you would say, from the rest of London. It was primarily designed by American architect so it does kind of have this feel of not feeling like it's part of the rest of London. Um, I think to have the proposal that they've kind of put forward to make it like more visitor friendly, more kind of family friendly and kind of proposing to build housing and stuff there because I think for now like when I look at it I don't think that people live in Canary Wharf like I don't think people should live in Canary Wharf. It doesn't really have any sort of community facilities like and I think you can tell from the people who work there who rush out at 5pm that it isn't somewhere that they are particularly keen to stay either. Um, yeah, so I think the Green Spine, I think, is interesting. I think it'll be really interesting to see how the kind of existing community of people who do work in the financial and banking sector and then the kind of the proposal of making it, I guess, more of a place to live and more of a place for people to come on weekends and more of like a tourist centre, how that will kind of work together. Um, it's kind of like introducing a financial district to kind of like Oxford Street for example like it's very different audiences and like very different people who use the space so I'm interested to see how that works out I think it will be really interesting just simply because it's by the Eden project and um, yeah I'm really interested to see how that works out. Zoe what what does this mean for the future of workspace in London you know how, how do you clearly part of this whole kind of big plan by Canary Wharf group is because they're they're in a bit of um I don't know, a kind of uh, a, 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 a moment of crisis or something. They're, they're, a, they're, a, they're a big landowner and uh, they have all of these tenants who are uh, essentially workspace providers and those workspace, pro the, those, those tenants are not kind of coming back to the, um, to the, to the wharf. Uh, so, you know, why do you think it is that companies such as those in the city and Canary Wharf are struggling to kind of lure their employees back sort of post-pandemic. We've come really far since the Pret subscription model, haven't we? Like, <laughs> <laughs> two years ago, the city was there being like, how do we get people back into Pret? Like, we really need them to be drinking their flat whites. And now we're like, no, no, let's just do the Disneyland of biodiversity in the Disneyland of business. And it's, it's, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of farcical to watch these like huge, like you said, landowners uh, and all of these huge businesses like fret and try and work out how they can control their minions back. Um, and I think potentially what's quite interesting about this is it's all is 
the rebranding of what like business and power looks like. And so, you know, we've gone from the kind of the almost like pre-pandemic we work where it was all about keeping everyone inside for as long as possible. You know, we've got like nap bubbles and beauticians on site and doctors on site and it was all about keeping people in what can we do to, n- to make people hyper efficient to not walk outside to not go and get their prep from outside and to get their flat white from inside all of this sort of stuff to like micro um manage the efficiency of the teams and people it keeping people in and keeping them bumping into each other around the corner corners so they come up with great ideas and all of this and then this is like the next evolution of it which is interesting in context with Canary Wharf because Canary Wharf came around as like a big 1980s dream of um, prosperity and power. It needed to look like glass and steel and concrete. And it feels like there's, whether it's pandemic related or whether there's just a general questioning of what these centers of power look like to then start throwing what people are clearly craving and wanting within their urban realm, which is nice public spaces where there are genuine kind of like activities that are not based on um, consumption and drinking and eating and all of this sort of like, and if it works then great, but it feels like the next stage of rebranding what the 1980s dream that has almost like run its course up to 2022. Yeah, I think one thing I would would say on this is is like, I actually quite like Canary Wharf in a sort of weird way. Like I've spent a lot of time there. I enjoy the kind of funny foresty bit. I enjoy the kind of water. Um, I think it does have some remarkable qualities as a space and that kind of North American, um, it almost feels like in downtown Seattle or kind of uh, Toronto or something at times. But um the the kind of urban concept of like a, a whole district dedicated to one thing like that feels like such a dated idea now and um part of this clearly is is canary wharf group acknowledging that actually a, uh, a neighborhood is a complex thing it has housing it has schools it can't just have bankers um and so i i'm i'm kind of very excited about this 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 sort of acknowledgement that um Th- you need a bit more complexity to make a make a place work. And the other thing I find curious a- about Canary Wharf, is, uh, related to what you were saying, Hapser, is like there's such a hard line between Canary Wharf and Poplar, and Canary Wharf and the Isle of Dogs. Like, it's, uh, as a kind of former East Londoner for uh, for a long time, like it was really hard to like walk to Canary Wharf or cycle to Canary Wharf. You kind of had to drive there or get the tube in. And it's funny that they're spending so much effort on kind of upgrading the landscape inside the estate when really i feel that the big weakness of that place is the porosity of the landscape around the estate our next story um moving on uh this is about the um it's about richard rogers and channel four so as the government presses on with its highly controversial plans to privatize channel four attention has turned to what will happen to the broadcaster's iconic richard rogers designed headquarters in westminster last week the 20th century society released a statement of its strong support for the listing of the building which it describes as quote one of rogers's most significant public commissions in the uk Channel 4, which first began transmission in 1982 as a culturally challenging alternative to the BBC, looks set to be sold as the government continues a decades-long policy of gradual privatizations, which has seen council houses, utilities companies, aviation providers, Royal Mail, and now broadcasters gradually sold off, often at discounts to private sector buyers and individuals. 
The sellout puts the £100 million Channel 4 building in a precarious position, as many suspect it will be one of the network's first assets to be sold if a private sector buyer is found. As for the building itself, similarly to Rogers's Lloyd's building or the Millennium Dome, Channel 4 uh, is sort of seen as a kind of inside-out building with the services on the outside and structural elements visible and kind of architecturally expressed. The 20th Century Society has said um, that a certificate of immunity, which is basically a document that the government makes guaranteeing that a building will not be listed, was in issued last November. And now at the time, that was prompted by uh, plans to replace the building's glazing. Uh, and the, the 20th Century Society strongly objected to that immunity certificate and instead recommended the building should be listed then. Uh, but no decision was yet made on that. So now, in the wake of Rogers' death at the end of last year, the Society has compiled a dossier of all of his built works in the UK and recommended several for national listing, including the Channel 4 building. 20th Century Society director Catherine Croft commented, quote, The Channel 4 headquarters counts as one of Rogers' most significant public commissions in the UK, one that absolutely should be listed. It was purpose-built for the broadcaster. It reflects the values of a publicly-owned institution. While the building itself doubtless will suit other occupants, it would be sad to see a landmark building stripped of its purpose and threatened with a quick sale. So, Zoe, what is this all about? Uh, it's looking like a very real possibility that Channel 4 um, will be leaving public hands, potentially to risk this sort of future of asset stripping by a, a, a private owner. Why is it that these cultural institutions seem to be so at risk of being lost to private companies? Why are we still talking about privatisation? I mean, the straightforward answer is obviously competition with the streaming channels and trying to keep up with the likes of Amazon um, and, 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 and profitability, like what profit can be made from this? Um, because taking things like railways, post and telly, which everyone needs and loves, and then making them private so that they are profitable... Um, what I actually think is that there's a, there's obviously so much in these cultural institutions that the the funding model the funding model of Channel Four the fact that it's publicly owned but it earns money from commercial advertising means it's like such a unique model and it means it can do really really unique things and it can do quite unique things as a publicly owned broadcaster that private companies would never do so all of this investment and all of this commissioning of like small production companies that are really I in tune with what people are interested in way before the big corporates tap into there being a consumer market who are into it so it means it's really responsive it's really innovative and then it's really good and people really like it and enjoy it and then it's almost like these Cultural institutions can create something amazing because they can absorb the risk, because they don't have to answer to profit, um, and they can produce all this amazing stuff, and then it gets an incredible following, and then the corporates can kind of like loom over um, and see what value it has to be extracted. And then it would, you know, the chances are that Channel 4 would lose so much of what it's about. Like, something was like 40 to 50% of its programming budget would be cut um which is like massive and it would you know we'd lose all of the commissioning from these like smaller production companies 
Um, and unfortunately, like we see it across so many different things, like not just cultural institutions, like housing is exactly the same. All of this innovative work that's highly is high in risk is done by public sector or like something that's like joined up to the public sector that means that they can absorb the risk because they're not doing it for profit. They're doing it because they're a service and they're publicly, they're serving their public. And that can absorb risk and create incredible stuff. And then at the point that it's successful and potentially profitable, that's when we see the corporates kind of like sniffing around. Um, and not to mention, Boris has a huge chip on his shoulder about Channel 4. Yeah, super interesting. But, like, you know, clearly Rogers was, you know, he was private sector architect, right? So, like, there, there is clearly a role for the private sector. Um, Hafsa, Rogers, you know, passed away. Um, he leaves behind him just a, an astonishing legacy of, of buildings in London and beyond London. Uh, as, a, as a Londoner, you know, are you a fan of his contribution to the city? Can you kind of tell us about um, what you find compelling about uh, the work of that practice? Rogers kind of pioneered this kind of style of high-tech, inside-out building type architecture that I guess faced a lot of criticism at the time. He was kind of building these buildings with the centre Pompidou, which faced a lot of criticism and a lot of kind of artists refused to actually have their work exhibited there because... They thought it was such a ridiculous building, but then it opened and saw five times the footfall that they were expecting in its first year. So you can't really deny the impact that he's had on kind of modern architecture. And then the Lloyds building was obviously the youngest building to be listed as a grade one listed building um, in London, which is also incredible. So I think obviously I can't deny that he's had a huge impact on architecture and on modern architecture and I think obviously his work is celebrated so I think it is quite ridiculous that they don't want to list the channel field building considering that the impact his work has had on architecture um, but I do feel and I feel like a lot of kind of his ideals have been adopted by a lot of practices with this whole idea of kind of um, minimizing structure in buildings and kind of ma to maximize the space inside and to maximize light in buildings and I think that that's something we're going to continue to see this kind of like stripped backed more sculptural architecture and less kind of I don't want to say like less kind of um, interest in like pretty facades but I guess kind of like more like this is kind of what a building looks like and like to see what a building is made of and I think that's more important for people who outside of architecture as well to kind of look at a building and be like okay well these are elements that make up a building that I would never have been able to see because I don't really get access to these kind of buildings unless you come to the Open House Festival. <laughs> <laughs> Which you should come to the Open House Festival. Um, and, you know, Roger, they are actually, of all the practices in London, Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners put in loads of stuff into Open House. So if you are a fan of the work of um, Richard, then do come to Open House Festival because there's usually loads of cool things in the, in the show. Um, our next story, Grenfell Inquiry. Um, the Grenfell Inquiry, now in its second phase, has been hearing from members of the government and civil servants who, it is reported, were repeatedly warned that fire safety regulations were not adequate. You might have seen this online. Last week, Eric Pickles, now a Conservative peer in the House of Lords, was the most senior former government minister to give evidence to the Grenfell Inquiry so far. During the hearings, Pickles asked the Inquiry Board not to waste his time by advising the senior council to, quote, use your time wisely before going on to get the death toll from the disaster wrong. As you can probably imagine, the incident has ignited uh, a huge um, backlash and a lot of pain. Pickles, 
who was housing secretary between 2010 and 2015, told the inquiry that there was competition between the departments to save money through deregulation. And this was part of a wider agenda to reduce costs for companies and shrink the role of the state in guaranteeing building quality. So he said, quote, I would be misleading you if I said there wasn't a degree of what might be described as sibling rivalry between various government departments. I'm sure this is the case. The inquiry was shown a league table uh, that ranked government departments by the amount of money that they had saved through deregulation. De departments that had saved a lot of money were coloured in green, whereas departments uh, that had not were coloured in red. The then-named Department for Communities and Local Government, which Pickles headed up, came fourth in the table with savings of £201 million, so it was coloured in green, which has led many to, ask, to, to wonder whether that was the right priority given what later happened. Um, in a subsequent email to the inquiry, Eric Pickles apologised for having other tragedies on his mind when he incorrectly referred to nameless 96 people while giving evidence and for the record 72 people died at Grenfell all of them had names and you'd have really thought that someone in his position would know those names or at least know that they had names so Hafsa what is all this about what have we learned from the inquiry so far is it a surprise to you that a government minister has made um, comments like this indicating that cost saving was a dominating factor in departmental decisions perhaps more so than resident safety uh, what has gone wrong in your view I don't really have a neutral opinion on this at all. I think when the kind of Grenfell thing happened, I volunteered and I kind of like helped people on the ground. I went to the protest and I think, yeah, there's no way to kind of like say it other than he's a complete idiot. And I think it's ridiculous that he's the minister and that he thinks it's okay to kind of complain about how this was kind of like, that this was like, taking over his schedule or that he didn't have time for this and then to kind of not know how many people died and to kind of show the disrespect and I think at the hearing there were people there who were victims or survivors of the actual fire telling their story and how this has affected their lives and for you to stand there with such contempt and disregard for these people's emotions and like what's happened to these people I just think like you've you've got to have no conscience you've got to be barely human because I think it's disgusting and I think for you to say for you to say it's sibling rivalry and for you to save a mere 201 million pounds over the lives of 72 people who had family, who had friends, who had everything to live for, and for you to think that that's okay because you wanted to make those cuts, I just think that you're vile. Like, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Um, Zoe, I mean, there has been a total kind of lack of responsibility taken by many of those who are in government um, at the time for this tra tragedy with many claiming ignorance of the situation at Grenfell prior to the fire. Yet we have heard from residents again and again who emphatically flagged issues before the fire and were simply not listened to. If we can look to the future and try and see a more kind of positive uh, that can, can come from this, you know, how can we amplify community voices so that people living in these communities are heard um, in the future and don't have to worry about horrific and preventable events like this happening again? I think recognising that Grenfell came after a very, very long and deliberate 40 years of stigmatising and villainising a lot of people who were in their position through welfare, withdrawal, 
through language around like concrete monstrosities, sink estates, uh, benefits, ground, all of that stuff which had been going on through political parties, through a very closely linked media, leading to this like perfect storm of, of just like, a horrific moment. Um, and the fact that uh, what was it, like eight months before someone had literally said something horrific will have to happen for us to be listened to. What we can take from that is that people who were in the position of the Grenfell residents, and they described themselves, they were sub, they were treated like sub-citizens. Um, and they, there's all of this stuff about the, the landlord associations who would, you know, email and message each other being like, just ignore them. They will, they will stop. They will go away. But I think that, um, the most important thing, when you read lots of the comments that these um, the people who were living there were saying, they knew what was happening. They 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 were so aware of the work that was being done to that building. They were aware of the sorts of gas boxes, um, the boxes that were being put around the gas pipes there, and they knew the risk that was happening. And what happens, or my take on it, is that community-based knowledge is is infantilized. It's seen as peripheral. It's seen as uh, as subjective superfluous and professionalized knowledge which is w held within governments within private buildings is like is top of the hierarchy uh, and that is and th and that's governed by things like efficiency and profit and how we can save money and so the most important thing from this is to recognize that people who live somewhere know that place so so well more they know it better and in a more useful way that it, than just being applied to a placemaking strategy. They know it in a way that they know about what makes their life good. They know what makes their life bad. They know when they're at risk. Um, and it's uh, and it's just that so it's a, a travesty that all of that knowledge wasn't listened to and it was infantilized. Um, and the landlords had this bizarre paternalistic relationship of just like ignore the screaming child and it will calm itself down. Um, and so, yeah, so, so, so my take on it is that to recognize that knowledge that isn't, uh, learned or gained through like the mo the most sanitized professional ways is probably the richest and should be at, like triumphed and put to the top first. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We're going to turn to a lighter story, but thank you. I really appreciate your 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 thoughts on that that um, very heavy and very distressing um, episode of uh, Mr. Pickles uh, at the inquiry. Um, so our final story for tonight is that last week it was announced that the Queen, who is ninety five, will make Windsor Castle her new permanent address following her exodus from London during in, in March twenty twenty actually ages ago the start of the pandemic. Her absence, um, uh, you know, has led to speculations about, you know, what to do with Buckingham Palace. What is the future for this world-famous Georgian building? Uh, so amid all the rumours, news website My London has published an exclusive interview with Tim Martin, the owner of Weatherspoons, who suggested that part of the building could become a pub, arguing it might be a good way for the royal family to earn a bit of extra income. Now, this is actually not the first time that a uh, alternative use has been proposed for the Grade One listed palace. Back in the 1960s, uh, the eccentric uh, architect Cedric Price, I guess best known to the public for his work on the London Zoo aviary, uh, but a kind of prolific thinker within um, architecture for many years, he and his students sought a, a change of use order for Buckingham Palace on the grounds of underuse, because it's unoccupied most of the year. Uh, and they proposed that it should be um, used as a youth hostel instead. And, um, we <laughs> I mean, it didn't get very far, but it um, prompted a change in the law because it became clear that um, they, they shouldn't really have been able to make this formal application in the first place. And so the kind of rules around planning applications were changed to make sure that, you know, if you want to do a planning application change, you need to own the building that you're applying for uh, permission to change into a youth hostel first. Um, so more recently, in 2001, the AJ reported that, uh, you know, the recently knighted Sir Terry Farrell had also drawn up some changes to the palace aimed at making it, quote, uh, making the, quote, hostile statement of a building more open to citizens who pay for its upkeep. And Farrell wanted to kind of knock holes in the, the wall around the garden and kind of open it up. He said he was going to um, take a jackhammer and the bulldozers to the one-mile-long wall around the Queen's Gardens. Um, so, you know, there's lots of good ideas. Pubs, holes in walls... The architectural community is really <laughs> has some radical thinking here. So, Hafsa, you know, what do you make of these kind of alternative ideas for what to do with Buckingham Palace? What do you think it should be? I kind of agree with Farrell. I think especially, like, the garden in question, because I think green space is such a big, like, buzzword in architecture at the moment, and I think having unused green space is, like, 
gasp worthy. So I think, yeah, like having public access to the Queen's Garden would be amazing. And I think, I don't see why it can't be a royal park as well and be open to the public. As for the building, I feel like any alternative is better than what it is at the moment. Um, yeah, I've never actually been inside, which is weird because I was born and raised in London. I've always kind of walked past, um, but I've never actually been inside. I feel like potentially a school could be interesting, I think, or some sort of kind of like education or building would be quite interesting to have there. Zoe, um, you know, th this idea from Tim Martin to turn it into a pub, uh, it does, it's, you know, I have no particular love for Tim Martin, but like, I, I do have a love for pubs, maybe. And, uh, you know, what role do you think pubs play in communities around London? I mean, they wouldn't have to change the carpets, would they, from Buckingham Palace carpets to where the spoons go? Oh, I've watched The Crown, okay? <laughs> um, well, actually, guys, I'm going to do a plug because we've written a whole book about the public and cultural history of pubs. And I think that David Knight says it much better than uh, I do. Um, so David puts it really nicely, and he basically says, for two decades, London pubs have been central to our lives. Um, in them, we have celebrated and recovered, forged lasting friendships, danced to unforgettable gigs, met with clients and members of the public as part of our professional lives, taught, lectured, argued among ourselves and with others, discovered new perspectives, led workshops, marked birthdays, and found ways of navigating the city. London's pubs have brought us into contact with people who share similar obsessions and enthusiasms, and with those who are so different from us that striking up a friendship in any other context is hard to imagine. Um, and so, I mean, that's just like a glorious list of all the great ways that we carry out our most like convivial moments with other people and strangers. And so why wouldn't the head of state want that to happen in their gorgeously carpeted and upholstered palace? Um, sure, why not? Like, I mean, at this stage with London and like land values and like it's all to play for. And if people can have a good knees up at Buckingham Palace rather than one of the tea parties that Queenie likes to host. I think it's I think it sounds great. I'm all for it. Open at the garden, pub on the ground floor, youth hostel on the but I think we've solved it, champs. This is this is great. Um finally I just you know we we've got a little bit of time to look at what's coming up in London. Uh it's kind of a cultural cultural section we just look at you know what what could you do with the rest of your week or the weekend. Um any highlights from from the two of you that you're looking forward to? So last week I went to the building centre to go visit the uh, British Pavilion, which is called the Garden of Privatised Delights. I, like many of us, probably didn't get to go fly out to Venice and go see it. Um, but yeah, it's really cool. So I think if anyone wants to go down and see it, I think it's, I don't want to say much cooler in London, but obviously they built kind of like a climbing frame, which in Venice you couldn't actually climb on. But here in London you can climb on it. So if anyone feels like climbing up, um, you should definitely go check it out. And I feel like it just feels way more situated here. So I think it's really great that they brought it over and I think they should make a habit of doing that. That's a great idea. So b b go to the building centre. Zoe, any plugs for you? Yes. So our friends at the London Society are putting on um, an important event, which is curated by Resolve Collective, who we at Open City are big fans of. Um, and between the two organisations, they're asking how should the built environment professionals um, involve young people in the process? And again, that's something that Open City have been championing for for a really, really long time. And um, so any more and other organisations talking about it and doing it is very much worth a plug. It will be it will be really interesting. And I think that, yeah, anything that Resolve put on is always like good crack. So well worth it. I've got uh, two things that I would recommend. One is the Architecture Foundation that I used to work for, in fact. Uh, they, they have this kind of, um, 
kind of uber lecture series that they do at the Barbican and, and it's back then you know it was paused during the pandemic but it's back they're doing lectures again um they're not all amazing but a lot of them are really good and very compelling and um there's a few coming up um Witherford what's a man uh Joe Morris is speaking on the 25th of April from Morris and Company and uh, he has a 1900 seat venue to fill so if you want to learn about what Morris and Company are up to, you know, um, interesting architects practicing in, in London mostly, but also now in Copenhagen, uh, I'm sure um, there's seats available. <laughs> um, but also I wanted to mention the Stewardship Awards. So this is um, a program Open City set up to recognize kind of long-term urban care of the built environment. And um, the, t the 2020 Stewardship Awards have been going on for a year. There's a short list. Um, really compelling set of projects, uh, everything from estate managers to kind of landscape strategies to biodiversity strategies playing out uh, over years, sometimes decades. And they have a public program of uh, events which start on Wednesday the 4th of May at the Church of St. Boltoff without Bishopsgate, which is near uh, Liverpool Street and it's very beautiful. Um, so uh, well worth going to the Open City website, to the events section, and um, having a look at the kind of stewardship program there, because I think urban stewardship is going to be like, you know, a very important theme of like the next few years. Um, thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Thank you both for being on the show. That is the end of the London. Um. Um, your questions, yeah. I mean, like, as Merlin said, there's a kind of balance to strike in your own mind about whether you want a beer or a question answered. M Merlin's going to uh, start. I, I really I thought it was absolutely fascinating what you're saying about the Channel 4 headquarters. Um, and one of the things that strikes me, I don't know how many of us know Westminster, but on uh, Victoria, Victoria High Street uh, is the enormous former um, Scotland Yard building. And it was, like, demolished and redeveloped, and it obviously was, like, an epic moment to... You know, cash in on a public asset and put a load of residential on it. So one of my questions, my question is, is that with this whole potential threat to the Channel 4 building, is this all about just the land values? Is it just that there's a plan, you know, potentially there's a lot of money that could be made from demolishing a really cool building that was a, a cultural asset? Um, is, is that potentially what, what the real story is here? What I find odd about this is that the price that they want to raise is really low. It's like a billion pounds, which like the the some the profit of Channel Four is is close to that in one year. It's not uh, it's not entirely that, but like it, it it's 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 something like you know hundreds of millions, nine hundred million or something like that. So unless I've massively misunderstood, whoever buys it is going to make their money back within a year or within two years. Sorry. So it seems like an incredibly bad deal for the government. And even if you were a kind of neoliberal maniac who just wanted to sell everything, surely you'd want to get a better price than something that's going to be, you know, pay for itself within a year and two months. So I, I, I think that I guess what, what I'm sensing in your question is like maybe there's something else going on. Like maybe the government owns that land or something and like Channel 4 doesn't actually own that land. And so they're factoring in being able to sell not just the company but like some of its holdings um because i just can't understand in the most kind of mercenary way why this is a good good deal for the british taxpayer or for the the exchequer it, it seems like a terrible uh, financial idea 
I just wanted to ask one more thing, which was about communities, and it's the Zoe. With the Open House Festival, you're doing some radical stuff with communities, okay? So we were hearing about how they were excluded from Grenfell and the Grenfell um, pre what happened with the disaster. What are you doing to involve communities in the Open House Festival? And then after you answer that, Paul will ask his question. Yeah, so for the festival, I am really excited. One of the big things I would really like to do is that there are just the most, as we all know, m the most amazing community, civic, cultural, arts, collectives, organisations in London who do incredible work. And one of the biggest things that hold them back is either not having space, permanent space, and not having secure space to be able to do their work. Uh, and these organisations and collectives meet so many citizens' needs, wants, joys, um, and so for me, being able to platform their work and almost like matchmake them to some of the space that is open during the festival that is amazing in itself will be incredible architecture, but we could potentially elevate it, make it better and activate it by programming activities by some of these incredible uh, collectives and organisations who can run stuff during the weekend there. Um, and yeah, I'm all I want housing associations in their residence associations. I think that estates, people who rent, I don't think we really get people who rent showing off their homes yet. Um, it's very much like an ownership. If you own it, you can. So yeah, I'm, I, the more the merrier. If it's special to someone, it will be special to someone else and therefore open house is the place that we open it and celebrate it. Okay, well, as I've been asked to ask a question about the landscape, I'm very happy to do that. I think there's some very interesting issues here. Um, you mentioned uh, the Eden Project was designed, it was designed by Grimshaws, who did the buildings, and then the landscape within the quarry was done by land use consultants by a landscape architect called Dominic Cole. My question about Canary Wharf, whilst I absolutely welcome uh, both a, a more diverse, a, bi a biodiverse Canary Wharf with a lot of green infrastructure, is... is where will the landscape architecture be? Where will the overall landscape planning be? And if it is going to be done in partnership with, um, with, with the Even project, w will it be with their in-house landscape architects? Or whether so I think the question is not just about the vision, but how will a decent uh, landscape plan be created? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I, I al Although they're saying, you know, the mayor is saying he wants people to come out of the tube station and see greenery and water um, I'm not convinced that landscape is at the heart of this strategy I think um, kind of uh, leisure is at the heart of this strategy and they're talking about water sports and kind of you know jet skiing around the the basins in 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 Canary Wharf um, and I sort of understand that they're trying to turn it into a bit of a theme park make it feel more fun not just bankers banking, but like, you know, people doing kind of, uh, you know, surfing or whatever. Um, but when they talk about it as this kind of ecological biodiverse strategy, I'm maybe I'm being cynical, but I haven't seen a proposal that is, is what I would think of as landscape led. I, I, I feel like it's kind of retail and uh, yeah, kind of novelty leisure led. I don't know though, you know, maybe I'm being too mean. It's also worth saying that a lot of the, it's also worth saying a lot of the existing landscape there is excellent. I mean, it's about 10 or 20, so there's some absolutely stunning, very formal landscape, particularly above, uh, above the Jubilee Line station. And also to go back to your earlier comment, what London has got led by the mayor is the all London green grid, which is very much about creating green pathways across the whole 
of the city and connecting each part of the city, each park to another part of the city. So I suppose the question is, in what way, I mean, it kind of touches on your stuff about edges, but, but also in what way will any scheme within Canary Wharf connect to the wider green infrastructure of the whole of the city? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, 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 that's such a good point. Like, landscape is not really something that it's like, it's not, there are garden designers who are landscape designers and that there is a kind of crossover there but like i i don't think that landscape strategy should be thought of as like we're going to design a garden here it should be a much more kind of outward facing infrastructure upgrade that's going to tie um places together and you have the thames coming into canary wharf and it, it, it feels like that could be a kind of really cool opportunity uh but you also have like a bunch of other edges there's the kind of motorway that cuts canary wharf off from poplar and like what do you do about that problem um it it, it, it could be a, like a, an incredibly exciting opportunity for a really badass landscape designer but um, my concern is it will turn into kind of um sort of um uh like hen parties in hot tubs floating around uh, which is sort of what they're they're starting to do at the moment actually but like we're starting to see this at Canary Wharf. And like, is that what you think landscape is? Is like people floating around in hot tubs? Um, uh, that, yeah, of course that's not free. Whereas that that forest, the formal forest on top of the tube station, um, is free. You know, anyone can just wander into that forest, and it, it's actually quite a special place to be. And it it, it feels like you've been transported out of London. There. Are, they're, 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 that's where, where I feel most like I'm in the kind of best bits of American urbanism, like the, the real kind of like um, memorable moments of, uh, of Seattle or somewhere like that. Um, we have another question. Um, qu question for, for Hafsa and then uh, Zoe. Um, um, related to, to Grenfell, um, um, o Open City talks rightly a, a lot about celebrating architecture and celebrating architecture that is kind of under-celebrated uh, in people's communities. Um, it, it made me think about, um, with the five-year anniversary of Grenfell coming up, how um, organisations <coughs> might uh, mark that occasion. You know, it doesn't... It you know, calls for something opposite to or very different to celebration and what that might be. And I wonder, Asa, given your experience of activism and um uh and so on what 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 you what you might imagine marking that occasion in in a in a in a, in a suitable way or positive way might might be for open city and for zoe um uh, also related to to grenfell um i think this thing you said about the the kind of expert by experience knowledge that people bring to the buildings and places that they live in was really interesting and it, it that was kind of hinted at by Judith Hackett in her independent review of the building regulations and the building safety bill is still in in play now um being being at some point in its um, parliamentary um, procession uh, I'm not sure what um but I feel like that bit of it has been slightly lost um that um uh, that idea of uh, expert by experience knowledge as part of a kind of holistic view of the whole building. But I wondered what you thought, regardless of what happens with the building safety bill, how architects and other um, practitioners might, um, might try and uh, incorporate that kind of knowledge specifically into um, 
building safety? Yeah, thanks for your question. Um, I think ultimately there's very little you can do to kind of, I don't want to say commemorate something like this, but I think there's very little that organizations and like institutions can do to make up for the lives lost. But I think kind of standing with the communities and I think listening to the communities is like the most important part. And I think like it is kind of gross, but I feel like these these organizations or these people that are kind of standing and like demanding these things or at these inquiries, at these hearings, are the people who were kind of like the most affected by this. And I think they do need money and they need backing. And I feel like that is the strongest thing that people at the top can do for them at the moment. I think it's all fair enough, like if you post something on Instagram saying how sad it is and like commemorating the five years and stuff like that. But unless you're actually putting money behind it, you're actually putting your voice behind it and like you're putting yourself in, I guess, in a precarious situation because I guess some people will see it as something too political or something that they can't get involved with. And I think for architects and people kind of in the industry holding themselves accountable and realizing that you can't just cut corners and stuff like that because of the fact that there's real lives at stake like in what you do and I think that's really important. And I think just holding ourselves as people in the built environment to a higher standard and realizing that the buildings that we build ultimately are gonna house people or are gonna keep people in them and keeping people at the forefront of our mind when we are designing, when we are kind of having these conversations. Um, yeah, so I think that's the most important thing. Uh, that was loud. Um, yes, okay, so in terms of what I think about like expert by experience, knowledge, there's, there's so, so many ways. I think at the moment, f from my experience with a bit of research is that a lot of architectural practices, which are commercial practices, that's how they, you know, make their money, pay their staff, pay the rent for their office, have to move into thinking very much like a business. And that means that things that are priori prioritized, things like efficiency, profit, um, and actually the thing about lots of like localized sort of like um, localized knowledge is very subjective. It's quite anecdotal. It's like lived experience. And a lot of the time that takes a lot of work to um, capture, unravel, and then it put into practice. And, um, and so essentially what I'm saying is that I wouldn't be surprised if at the moment some, you know, a few kind of like community engagement uh, sessions is all that can be like afforded. But I think that there are just so many ways of taking people who know so much about it through things like stewardship, through recognizing that you, once the building is done, you hand it over and then there are the people who live there will carry on stewarding it. And maybe that's the, that's the chance where like that, that expert by experience knowledge gets like played out. Um, and, uh, and if they then have agency in that space that's been handed over to them to apply that to make the changes that they need to to respond to their needs because we recognize that they're not gonna mess it up or they're not gonna make it ugly because they don't know like the design codes or the qualities or the sort of the, the finish. Um, so I think that it's really hard for commercial practices to be able to take on that sort of, um, to do justice to that sort of knowledge. But then, so then potentially, maybe it's not specifically, specifically for architects to do I think that they can design um, they can design in a way that then allows residents and people who live there at, or or work or play or, or come together there to do stuff to it that responds directly to their needs and making tweaks and adjustments to it over a really long period of time is actually probably more 
impactful and meaningful than trying to just like capture it through a long conveyor belt process put it into place and hope that it does well for like many many years to come um but i've got many other thoughts on that and we won't talk about it now um, yeah, so this is just about the Canary Wharf story. So um, the Canary Wharf, yeah, story. And um, it's just about, because uh, I, I kind of live Isle of Dogs, so even just walking from the station, it will be like 10 minutes, and the landscape kind of changes so dramatically. And, you know, even the playgrounds that are near me, it will just be like a single slide with on top of some concrete, and it's like rusting fencing around it. And it's... Even you know putting that investment into parks and that's that's really lovely, but it's isn't that kind of like a worry that Canary Wharf, that area itself, is just going to be very exclusive compared to you know people who like I'm just a student renting just outside, but it's so different and you know isn't there not a worry that even putting more projects and funding towards that area is just going to shut out everybody else a lot more than it kind of already is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, this is my worry: is th is that if they if they pile more money into the middle bit and and forget about the edges and what lies beyond the edges, that will actually make that division between the Isle of Dogs and, and Canary Wharf even even worse. Um, and uh, that that's its big weakness, right? This this I'm giving them good advice here. When I'm <laughs> like, you would be better at engaging your community if you're trying to turn this place into a proper neighbourhood. Like, the easiest way to do that is to just help people who already live in the area, like yourself, to feel like they're part of the fun. And so if they could um, chip away at this kind of hard line, if they could spend the money on upgrading, I don't know, the play spaces in, in the Isle of Dogs or in, in Poplar around the kind of Brownfields estate and, 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 and all the kind of areas that are just um, north of that kind of the hard line of that motorway i think they'd they'd get a far more kind of bang for their buck in terms of like turning canary wharf into a sustainable and vibrant community from this kind of banking bubble um rather than you know doing kind of a water sports theme park um with a kind of eco bubble around it uh in the middle um so yeah i i, I that is exactly my concern but i think there's sensible things they could do to address that and i guess the challenge for us a lot is to you know get in touch and be like oi have you thought about these other strategies could this money be better spent and um, maybe we should all do that it's a really good example of where trickle down economics just does not work like canary <coughs> wharf is like the perfect case study for it so we should yeah we can advocate um everyone should be advocating for something different i think for you as a resident like your your lived experience, your expert by experience, should be fed into it. So yeah, get heard with it. We have though come full circle though, because like the whole point of Canary Wharf was it was this sort of special opportunity area, and at the start you could write off everything you spent on construction against tax. So if you were a big bank, you could literally build stuff, and the government would pay you to do it. So all of those towers, I don't think it's like this in, at the moment, but like the Caesar Pele Towers, the IMPE Towers, like they were effectively free gifts from the British taxpayer to these large um, financial institutions to incentivize, you know, development and growth, which in a sense has worked. But a bit like the Channel 4 story is an example of the public taking an enormous risk to do something very innovative and not really getting any of the credits, not being able to get a cash in on that because we, we, we made this like extraordinary gift to these, these big companies. They did some cool stuff with that gift, but now 
like it's not like the kind of the taxpayers of Tower Hamlets are seeing the benefits or the kind of residents of the Isle of Dogs are seeing the benefits necessarily. So, uh, you know, there are themes running through all of this. We're going to have to end there, I'm afraid. But thank you so much for joining um, the London Live. If you do want to subscribe to the podcast, um, it's not always live. So most of our shows are kind of uh, recorded in a studio environment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.